Well, welcome to Midland Free. Uh, my name is Pastor Jeremy. We're delighted to have you uh, continuing with us in worship this morning. The other day, there was a knock at my door, and it wasn't for me, as it turns out. It was uh, for my children, and it was one of the neighbor boys. And he had something he wanted to show my sons. Guess what it was? Huh? Frog, toad, no. I got them with the mower earlier in the day. It was, no, not a snake. No, not Pokemon. What, what did you say? Pocket knife, getting closer, I'll give you a hint. <laughs> gun, what kind of gun? BB gun, no. Airsoft, getting closer. Nerf gun, there we go. A brand new Nerf gun. and Oh man, it was so cool, ooh and ah, and wow, look at this new Nerf gun, blah, 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 blah. They get done talking, they come in, and guess what their first question is to me? Hey, Dad, time to go to Walmart. Need a new Nerf gun. We need a bigger one, a better one, because mine just shrunk in size all of a sudden. And indeed, that's the way it works. If you've never played with Nerf guns, they're a little bit like squirt guns or whatever, and basically the idea is the biggest gun wins, and you wouldn't believe some of the stuff they're putting out these days. I mean, giant Nerf machine guns, yada, yada, it's crazy. Well, there's nothing more fun, as you know, than pelting Dad with a full clip of Nerf gun. <laughs> I know. That's fun. But anyways, transitioning now into from Nerf guns into actual warfare, and much the same principle holds true, is that the biggest guns win. Today, whoever has the biggest guns or the most guns or whatever wins. That's how it works for us. Well, thousands of years ago, there's obviously a little bit less sophistication as far as weapons go, and so it was much more about numbers than technology. So in other words, the greatest number of people won. So if it's sword to sword or spear to spear or hand to hand or whatever, whoever had the most generally came out on top. So for example, if you had 30 to 40 men, you do not want to go into battle against 3 to 400. If you have 2 to 300, you cannot take an army of thousands. In that sense, it would be completely unreasonable for your general or your commander-in-chief to send you into battle if your forces were significantly smaller. You would be overwhelmed and you would be destroyed and you would lose. And yet, as we follow the theme of Scripture and we watch throughout the Old Testament, over and over and again, guess what God does? He puts Israel in that exact spot. In fact, he does it on purpose. Whether it's the armies of Egypt, the fortress of Jericho, or raids by the judges, nearly every single time the Lord God says to them, oh, hold on, hold on, <laughs> you've got too many people. Let me reduce your numbers so the odds are overwhelmingly in your enemy's favor. And then I'm going to send you into battle. Ready, guys? Here you go. I am being completely unreasonable on purpose. Why would God do that? Why in the world would He do such a thing? 
Why would God make sure that every situation his people are in, they are completely overwhelmed? The answer, I think, is this, that in those situations where their army is too small, where the forces are too weak, where the others are too strong, that it makes it very, very, very clear when you survive, yea, even when you win, how it happened. Judges chapter 7, verse 2, the Lord God said to Gideon, you know, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. In other words, guys, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you in a spot where there is no chance whatsoever for you to win. You are guaranteed to lose. That's where I want you. And at that point, You're in the right place. And then when you come out on top, there's no question who saved the day. So that it will all point back to me. Overwhelming odds produce in us humility, dependence, and faith for the purpose of our sanctification and God's glory. Welcome to parenting. I think this is a perfect description for this task that we're in. The only thing is, it's not a single battle. It's an 18-year war of attrition. (laughs) Over and over again, day by day, you fight the same battles, and you're like, Lord, I am overwhelmed. How am I ever going to win this? And indeed, when I even say 18, some people will come back to me after service and say, you know what, it doesn't end there. (laughs) We're still parenting. And even if you're not a parent, you probably have parents, and you may be parenting your parents. Today we're going to look at the sage's advice for how to be a parent. Whether you've never been a parent, whether you never will be a parent, you can apply this wisdom to your life. The basic principle we see at work is that of being overwhelmed. What's the answer? What do we do? How do I parent? How do I raise my kids, Pastor Jeremy? Tell me what. What I'm actually going to tell you today is not what specifically to do, but how to go about doing it. Therefore, everything I say should apply to nearly everything in your life. Proverbs 22.6 is a really neat verse. It's one that you hear trumpeted and parented, or trumpeted at all sorts of parenting conventions and stuff like this. It basically says this, Train up a child in the way... He should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he shall not depart from it. We read that text, and we think we've got it, and we start to apply it, and yet we come to the reality of parenting and life and this ginormous journey, and we say, man, that just seems a little bit too simplistic. (laughs) Life is complicated, life is messy, it's tricky, I don't always get it right. What in the world are we doing? What's the answer? Just work harder, do better, try more, and all of a sudden, eventually it'll work out? Is that it? No, I don't think so. There is something more here, and even though on the surface it looks fairly simplistic, this formula is actually quite realistic. In it, perhaps my greatest discovery is on the first section of the verse, and I'll spend the majority of today's sermon on that, on the train word, 
But let me show you just how today's sermon uh, will unfold. It's like this. My intent is to follow the structure of the verse. So I'm an expositional or a Bible preacher, and what it means, I want to preach the Bible. I don't want to preach from the Bible, but I actually want to preach the Bible. And so when the text sets a structure, I'm going to do my best to honor that and follow that structure. And here's how it works today. The first part of this verse is a command. So you'll see that the structure for today's sermon starts with a command. Number one is the command. The first part, train. There's your command. The next thing it tells you is how to do it in the route or the way. Train up the child in the way they should go. And then the final thing it gives you is the intended results. Here's your command. Here's the way to go about doing it. Now here's the results that we're after so that when they're old, they won't depart from it. This is the structure of today's verse, so hopefully it'll be the structure of today's sermon as well. The command, the route, and the way. Now, as I said earlier, for me, the most interesting discovery here was around the first part, that is the command, the, the word train. And what happens is when we hear that word, we immediately go to, okay, train, like for the Olympics, you know, like we got to get up at 3 a.m. and only eat vegetables and then practice for, you know, 25 hours a day or whatever, and we just got to go, 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 train harder, crack the whip, discipline, go, go, go. And in general, there is a hard work principle found in the book of Proverbs. You talk about the ant and the sluggard and all of these other things. So there's no discounting the value of intentional discipline and hard work. That is key. But yet, when I come to this verse, what actually jumped out at me is that is not necessarily the only thing that's implied in this word train. When we go to train, we think discipline, hard work. But this one's actually a little bit different. So let's do this. Let's look at the Bible, the way it uses the word, and we'll see what God has set in his plan to encourage us as parents with regard to this word. So the word train, here it is. It's a Hebrew word. You'll see it up on the screen. It's called hanak. And it occurs, this form, there's other forms, but this form occurs four times, and only four times, in the Old Testament. That is significant. So the author chose this word on purpose, this special, unique word he picked for a reason. Then what happens is this. Three of the four times, it always means dedicate. And only this one time here in Proverbs is it actually translated train or direct or start off. So all the other times this word is translated dedicate. Now let me give you a specific examples of those and I'll walk you through a couple. Here's, here's the uh, first two times the word is used. It's on a slide here. It's used, Hanak is used, oh, is that fuzzy to you? It's fuzzy to me. Oh, no. yep, it's fuzzy. Okay. That makes it look all the cooler, right? The Hebrew is actually transposed over the first word there. Technical, whatever, I don't know. But here we are. The word hanak means, or it is translated, the first two times it refers to the temple. When Solomon has built the temple, he is going to hanak it before the Lord. Solomon's going to dedicate this sacred space and set it apart and say, this is our worship spot. This is special. This is unique. This is not your gym floor. I mean, uh, no. This is a unique set aside. It's different. It's the New Testament. Don't worry. It's okay. 
This is a unique, special, set-aside place for a specific purpose. This is Hanak. This is dedicated for the sacred. It is worshipful. It's Hanak. Secondly, it's used of a house before battle. So it's used of a temple, now it's used of a house. Before they're going into war, the Lord God says to them, hey, wait, stop, go back, dedicate your house. If you haven't done so, I'm going to kill you. All right? There. Dedicate your house. And then third, and finally, it's of a child. So you have a house, you have a temple, a house, and a child. But three of the four times, it's always to dedicate. Now, let me show you, specifically with regard to the temple, a little bit of the sacred nuance. You actually have probably heard this word used before, Hanak. You may not realize it, but you actually have. Just out of curiosity, who can think of a word that we use today around the time of Christmas that sounds like Hanak? Hanukkah, exactly right. The word Hanukkah comes from this same word, Hanak. What happened is this, in 175 B.C., that's 175 years before Jesus became human, uh, in the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's all this turmoil in the land of Israel. They're always in between giant kingdoms, and they're getting conquered and switched around and handed back and forth. And in this time, it's no exception. And consequently, there's this guy by the name of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And he comes in and decides to destroy Jerusalem. So naturally you want to loot the temple because it's got all kinds of gold and silver and valuable objects. And stop the worship services there because you don't want them worshiping their God. You want them to worship you. And consequently what he does is he has an altar built in their temple. He desecrates their temple, builds an altar to Zeus, and offers a pig on it. Now, that's bad. If you're a Jew, that's about as bad as it can get. And then, to make matters worse, he outlaws circumcision and just totally imposes his will upon the Jewish people. So after a while, some of their priests are like, enough is enough, and you can kill us, whatever, we don't care, but we're not going along with this. And so they revolt. In 165 B.C., there's a Jewish revolt led by a priest by the name of Judah, and he orders that all the furniture be removed from the temple and destroyed and cleansed and new stuff brought in. And then for the menorah, the sacred lampstand, you have to use a special oil. And that oil has to be like consecrated by the high priest and it has to be you know, set for so many days and blah, blah, blah. And as it turns out, they only had one flask of this oil in that time period that would take to make new oil they did not have enough oil for the lamp to burn the whole time. And so the um, story behind Hanukkah is that what happened is they took that, that one flask for one day's supply and they lit the lamp and instead of burning just one day, which it normally would have, it in fact burned all eight days. And consequently, uh, this miracle occurred and they were able to um, go through the process of coming up with new oil before the temple, which was defiled, had now been rededicated. Hanat. So you have the festival of lights at Christmas time, which we see Jewish people observing as Hanukkah. It is the feast of rededication, the festival of lights, 
where they celebrate this miracle that occurred when they rededicated their temple. They call it Hanukkah, the feast of rededication. So when you go back into the Old Testament and you look at 1 Kings, here's a slide. Here's what happens. Now I'm going back. See, this is Solomon's temple. It's been destroyed, okay? But here is what happened in the original um, consecration of his temple. He says, it says, Solomon offered as peace offerings to the Lord 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people of Israel dedicated, that is, Hanak, the house of the Lord. In other words, what they're doing is saying, okay, this space is sacred and it is special. It doesn't belong to us. We didn't make it for ourselves. We made it for you, God. And consequently, we're going to be intentional about setting it aside for your use and for your purposes. Can you see where this might be going with regard to train or hanak your children? Same word, same intent to set them aside for a specific purpose. Now, developing it a little bit further, if you think about this, what's neat is this, is the other day I was, I was interacting with some good friends of ours, and they said, you know, we've got our grandchildren in town, and it's interesting because we're kind of acting as the parents, but it's not the same as being the parents. They're not your kids, and so since they're not your kids, you want to be so much more careful with them, you know, because you break them, you hurt them, you know, whatever, then you've messed up. I was listening to this story and thinking about how, for me, it'd be like driving somebody else's car, you know. If it's my car and it gets a little scratch, a ding, a dent, whatever, you know, no big deal. But if somebody else is really fancy, new, precious, whatever, I'm going to be a little bit more conscious about that. So, too, if we come to stay in somebody else's home, you know, in our home, if we spill the milk, we spill the milk, we clean it up, whatever. But somebody else's house, we're like, we don't know if that's like an heirloom from so-and-so or if that's just a dish or a vase or whatever. So we're a little bit more careful because it's not ours. Here's the idea being communicated then in this dedication, this Hanak of children. What the Lord God is saying to you is, look, these children that you have... In reality, they're not yours in the first place. You call them my kids, but they're not. They belong to God. They are His. He has loaned them to you. He has entrusted them to you for a certain period of time. They are special. They are set aside. They are sacred. They are gifts from Him to be given back to Him. They're not yours. And that does all kinds of things for us as parents. I mean, in some ways, it says, hey, man, take a break. Don't freak out. It's not such a big deal. Your kid's not going to dishonor you or whatever else. They might dishonor God. But ultimately, it's not on you. It's on Him because they're His kids. And so your job in this is to go to God and say, thank you so much for these precious gifts you've given to me. Sometimes I don't understand them. Sometimes they're crazy. Sometimes they're a mess. Sometimes I think, oh, Lord, what are you doing? And then I begin to understand how my mama felt about me. Lord, what is this? God, what am I supposed to do? And then you go back to the very beginning and you realize the text is saying, Hanak, dedicate them, consecrate them, train them. 
Give them back to God. They're not yours. And so if they're not, you also need to think really carefully about how you're treating them. If you're babysitting some other kid, are you going to be like, you stupid thing? <laughs> no. You're not going to be mean to somebody else's kid. They're going to go home and tell their mama. And then you're in trouble. And you know, don't mess with mama, right? It matters because they're not yours. If they're not yours, if they're dedicated, if they're given to God, how are you going to treat God's children? These are God's. How will you treat them then? It's not right, most of the stuff we do. They don't belong to us. They belong to God. Now, in the same way, for our gentleness and our compassion, it also applies to our correction because we say, whoa, if these are God's, He surely doesn't want me to let them get away with fill in the blank. If they're His, I cannot allow them to walk down the path to destruction. I have to do everything I can to prevent that and pull them back because if I do, I just knowingly let them go. Man, I have not done my job. And so it's this really difficult balancing act, right? But you've got to think about it in your own mind and realize these kids are not mine, so it's not about all about honor me and this and that. It's about honor God because they are a precious gift from Him. Consequently, I, like Hannah, have said, Lord, You gave me this child, now I give them back to You. They're in Your service. But... As I do so, I'm dependent on you to help me out here because since they are yours, I think you want them to turn out okay. And therefore, I need you involved in this process, Lord. And as we walk through it together, I'm going to constantly be looking back and forth, back and forth, saying, God, what do I do? What do I do? I don't get it. Why? Because I'm overwhelmed. I'm outnumbered. I'm outgunned. I'm in a situation that I'm not prepared for. They didn't come with an instruction manual. I haven't done this before. Every kid's a guinea pig for the first time. Even if you've had a kid, the second one's different. Good luck. You're in a spot that God has put you in for your sanctification and for His glory. And this is often true, not only with parenting, but any other relationship as well. God may have put that person in your life to make you a better Christian. (laughs) Not because you enjoy it. Because it's good for you to become more like Christ. Here's the idea when we look at this first term, Hanak, that your children are set aside, that they are special. They're given to you. They're on loan from God, but you are to give them back to Him and say, look, thank you, Lord, but ultimately they're yours, so I'm going to do my best with what I've been entrusted with, but I know in the end it's not mine and I have to give it back. And indeed, that's one of the hardest parts about parenting. I've asked this question on Facebook this week, and it's interesting to see various responses. Say, what's the most difficult thing about parenting? And everybody in different phases will answer differently. (laughs) But we've been to a few weddings recently, and we've seen what happens. Actually, I went to one, but we've seen a few. And we've seen what happens. It's hard at this transitional stage to give these children away and give them back to God and let them move on. You know it's a natural process and they have to do it, but this is strange and difficult transition. Now they're on their own. Have I done my job? Have I done it right? Have I done it well enough? What's going to happen? I don't know. It's all on you, God. It's all on you. I'm done at this point. I mean, I'll pray for them. I'll encourage them. Lord, here they are. That's an act of faith. 
You do this at college. You do this in marriage. You do this when they go off to summer camp. You do this all the time. When you constantly rededicate, reaffirm, consecrate your children back to the Lord. That's training them up. You do it when they're little up here on the stage, and you do it when they're big, when they're going away. They need to be consecrated. So the first use of Hanak is number one, in the temple before the Lord. Number two, there's three, use, there's three uses. First for the temple, two for the house, for the house. Listen to this. Here's, if this doesn't you know, affirm what I was saying earlier, listen, listen to how this works. This is the instructions for warfare. In Old Testament Israel, if you're going into battle, here's what you've got to do before you go in. Verse, chapter 20 of Deuteronomy, verse 1. It says, When you go out to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, okay, you're in a bad spot. You're overwhelmed. You shall not be afraid. Why? What's the key? For the Lord your God is with you. He brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and when you draw near to the battle, the priest come, shall come before the people and say to them this, Listen, guys, hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Don't let your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be afraid. Why? For the Lord your God is He who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and give you the victory. This is how warfare works. God's going to put you in a spot that overwhelms you. And your natural inclination is to say, oh, this is too much. But that's actually why you're there. And then once you're there, he says, okay, now don't worry about it. I got this. Now that I got it, here's what you make sure to do. Verse 5. Then the officer shall speak to the people saying, is there any man who has built a new house and has not Hanak dedicated it? Let him go back inside lest he die in battle and another man dedicated it. What in the world? Why wouldn't you tell me to sharpen my sword or get my spear ready or take this strategic formation or give me the tactical advantage? Why are you worried about the house? Well, here's why. I think this quote is so, so poignant. I have a slide. It says, If one's own home is not consecrated, one is not prepared for holy war. If your home is not consecrated, you are not ready to be a parent. That's why when we get these people up on the stage, we say, this ain't baby dedication, this is parent dedication. We are consecrating this whole house to say this is an overwhelming battle for the next however many years, and the only way through it is to depend on the power and grace of God. And if His power is not at work in this situation, we will lose. We cannot win without Him. And that is the nature of this battle. Parenting is a fight, a long one, and difficult one. And it is a holy war for the souls of your kids. The Bible makes it very clear to us in Ephesians chapter 6. It says, look, this isn't a physical fight. Instead, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and powers, cosmic powers over present darkness, spiritual forces, of evil in heavenly places. That's why God has given you His armor, so take it up and use it. Our real fight is not against the kids or anything else, but it's spiritual. This is a holy war. And the first step 
in raising your children right is to realize this. This battle is much bigger than us. And we can come up with all sorts of philosophies and educational paradigms and this and that and this and that, but at the end of the day, we are completely and totally dependent upon God. When I am parenting, I am a foot soldier against a tank. I am a boy against a giant. I am Ezra and Zion's dad. (laughs) I'm in trouble. I mess up. And my children will hear this sermon and they'll know it. And I have to say, but for the grace of God, would we get through this. Hanak, train. Train, or dedicate the temple, dedicate the house, and finally, dedicate the child. Now, when we talk about dedicating the child, I want to pull up a slide here. It's got a picture on it. This hopefully will remind you a bit of how we started off this series. The book of Proverbs is about the way of wisdom or the way of life versus the way of destruction or the way of the fool. And basically, all along the way, still with me? Thank you, Lori. All along the way, you're trying to figure out you know, what is the right way and what is the wrong way. And it uses this imagery, constantly putting the idea of the path or the fork in the road right in front of the listener. And so what happens then is when we talk about training our child, a lot of the questions that parents will have is they'll say, how? What do you mean? Train him. Tell me what to do. Like, should he be a doctor? Should he be a lawyer? Should he be a carpenter? Or should he be a farmer? Or should, you know, what do we do with our children? I don't know. And the Bible doesn't actually come to you and answer those questions. That's for you and them to figure out along the way as you discern God's divine design upon their life. I don't have those specific answers for you. And so what I do, what I can say is this, as we look at the way, we ask the question, what is that way? And there's all kinds of answers that people go back and forth. Some say it's the vocational way, train them the job they should do. Others say it is the uh, personal aptitude way. But finally, the one that I land on is this. It says, it is the moral view which stresses the good way. In other words, your job is not to teach them exactly what function to do with their life. But your job is to teach them how to love God and serve Him in holiness and faithfulness in whatever way they decide to go. Your job is to direct them down the course or the corridor of life, away from the path of destruction, but to the path of God the Father. If you can do that, that's success. That success is to direct them in the course of Christ. It is, in a sense, the continuation of Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is what it says here in verse 4. It says, Listen, O Israel, listen up, the great Shema. Hear this. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. That's your job. And these are the words that I'm commanding you today that they should be on your heart. And then, quickly following that, look, you need to teach them to your children too. Talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. At every opportunity, not just some strange, strange, awkward moment, pause during the day, okay, I'm going to force this family devotional down your throat. But no, at every natural spot you have to actually encourage your children along in the way. This is the idea, is that first, number one, 
you train your children, you dedicate, you consecrate them, you give them back to God, and you entrust Him for that. Number two, you walk them down that moral path. You point them in the right direction. And then number three, the intended result is that as a result, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, I need to stop right here because I know you're probably asking the question, well, um, hmm, tried that, didn't work. You know? What about the rebellious one? Same mom, same dad, same food, same house. Two are doing great. One, whoo, have no idea what happened there. Wow. Is that all on me? All my fault? I failed under this system? I'm done? Well, no. And the reason is this, is because if you remember how the Proverbs work, there's a couple things at play here. Number one, Proverbs, individual Proverbs are not exhaustive. This one proverb doesn't tell you everything. It tells you something, but it gives you a general rule and a principle by which to live. But then at other times, there are other principles at work too. That's why, for example, Proverbs 26, verse 4 through 5 says this. Here's verse 4. Answer not a fool according to his folly. Here's verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly. What? What's going on there? <laughs> they just totally, completely contradict itself? No, it's giving you a paradigm. So in one sense, you don't want to enter into it and get wrapped up and caught in the ridiculousness. But in another sense, you also don't want to become a part of it, so you need to get out of it and stop it, rebuke it, do whatever you want to do. Don't get into it with them. Don't waste your breath trying to redirect them, but make sure you don't get trapped in it. At some point, it's good to rebuke, and at other points, it's good to walk away. And Proverbs makes room for that. It knows. So too with parenting. Here in 22.6, it says, train up a child in the way he should go. That's the parent's responsibility. That's on you. But it's not all on you. Because if you look at Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, we have a slide here, I think. It says this, Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1 through 6, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding and you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. In other words, kiddo, I'm going to do my very best to make this work and make this happen from my side of things, but there's also your side of things as well. And I can preach, and I can talk, and I can show, and work, 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 but at the end of the day, it's on you to actualize this or appropriate it for yourself. So there's a both-and situation here. Yes, it's on you, mom and dad, absolutely. It's your job to consecrate and dedicate and raise and train and nurture and everything. But it's also on them. And you can't necessarily, I mean, maybe, maybe there's unique exceptions, but in general, you don't have success without both. Mom and dad, you need to be all in, but kids, you have a responsibility as well. Don't let them waste their breath. They're working hard here. This is for you, not for them. You belong to God. And they're just trying to give you back. So listen to what mom and dad have to say. I don't think I've ever met a parent my whole life who said, yeah, we got it all right. We were perfect. No trouble. <laughs> yeah, right. We all make mistakes. But at the end of the day, if we follow Deuteronomy 6 and we say we love God and 
we loved him and we loved him and we loved him and we tried and we tried to show our kids how to love him and we tried and we tried, then we've done our job. And it's on them to pick up the ball and carry it on. Here is Proverbs chapter 22, 6. The deal is this. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when they're old, they will not depart from it. Train means to dedicate. Here's a slide. The route is the moral way, and the intended results are that when they're old, they won't depart from it. This week, as I asked that question on Facebook, you know, what's the most difficult thing? I heard a lot of different answers. Stuff like setting the example, consistency, you know, apologizing, time management, maintaining your marriage, when your children get hurt and you grieve for them, the learning curve, physical exhaustion, the emotional swings up and down and up and down, watching them make mistakes, and finally letting go. It's all over the place. It is an absolutely overwhelming battle. So what do we do? How do we win? Where should we direct them? What path should they go on? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Direct your children to Jesus. He is the light of Hanukkah. He is the way to the Father. And He is the victory over sin and death. And so what happens then when you come to this overwhelming battle in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 9, Here's how I would reread it to you if we have a slide. Deuteronomy 20, verses 1 through 9. It says this, When you go out, I would say to parent your children, and you see the task and the challenges are larger than your own. Don't be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you. He brought you up from childhood. He can bring them up as well. Hear, O church, today you are drawing near for this enormous task. Let not your heart faint. Do not grieve or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is He who goes with you to fight for you, even within your family, and give you the victory. Thanks be to God, 1 Corinthians says, who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, my beloved brothers and parents, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in parenting is not in vain.